Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 7th, 2020. This is episode 2787 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Monday morning, and we're going to do a listener feedback slash topic roundtable discussion today, because not all of this is actually directly from listener feedback, but a lot of it is. I've got a great quote leading off today's show that I think is going to put you in the right mindset for the future. We're going to talk about the future quite a bit today. And uh, it will be not the typical person that we have a quote from, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it. I have a segment on ARK. The cryptocurrency, ARK, uh, there's been some questions lately. Am I still a big supporter of the ARK project? Because I certainly was in the past. The answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. I'm actually going to record that one and put it on YouTube as well as an individual segment because I think that will be a good one for cryptocurrency group on MeWe and for uh, sharing in, into uh, more niche audiences as well that don't maybe want to listen to a whole show. Uh, what to do if you feel you're going to be required to take the COVID vaccine and cannot avoid it. Like The person writing this is like, in my job, with what I do, they're going to make me do it. And he doesn't say it, but I'm, I'm taking away from that, and I can't afford not to. I'm going to have to take this risk, so what do I do about it? Uh, I'll give you some thoughts on that. Um, homeschooling has doubled in the pandemic, and I'm going to talk about a little bit why, why it's only a start, and I want to be clear when I do. When I say homeschooling, I do not mean kids going to school at home. I mean kids not in the state system anymore, also doing their learning at home. That's what I mean. My grandson is what I would consider a homeschool student because we use a private institution to help us with his homeschooling. He's not doing you know, his elementary school's work at home for them uh, as part of it. So when I say doubled, that's what I'm talking about. And it's important that we understand that because otherwise we might gloss over it. Uh, what to know about backup phrases for crypto wallets? I'm going to talk about that one a little bit. I might even record that one for, for YouTube because that might be worth doing. Uh, from Bermuda, Bermuda grass to garden bed. Why I think of all grasses uh, that we tend to have in backyards, Bermuda grass might require a little bit more um, consideration with how you handle conversion to garden beds. Um, buying and holding rural land when your partner doesn't want to ever move, ever, ever, ever. I don't want to move. I don't want to move out of the country. But you're like, you know, I do think Jack's right that the, the value of land is going to continue to go up, and this might be a good time to, to, to partake in that. And then that way I have an opportunity in the future if things change, etc. I'll talk about that and maybe some ways you can help mitigate the cost of that. Why networks and groups will become more important than ever whether it's John Bush's Freedom Cell Network or whether it's just knowing your neighbors well. Well, I think that's going to be one of the most important things we can can do for ourselves going forward is putting together mutual aid groups. And uh, a little thing at the end about the new cryptocurrency group on MeWe and how things beyond cryptocurrency are going to come for it from it and why you might want to be uh, part of it. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is ButcherBox.com, the company whose product is so good that I take it as barter in exchange for the advertising. Uh, no one else has really offered that. I'm not sure that it would work out. You know, I mean, 
my advertising is expensive enough that someone like our other sponsor, Dave Backwoods Home, just really can't do it. They, they can't come up with that much value uh, directly in, in retail, right? So maybe it's just that. But, I mean, guys, I love getting that big box of meat delivered to my home every month. It's, it's awesome. And it is high-quality stuff. Grass-fed, pastured stuff. I mean, it's just some of the best meat you'll ever eat. And it doesn't really cost that much more than buying it if you can find it in the first place in the market. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know, these guys, like I said, you're talking about a subscription cost here that annually doesn't cover one month. I would take it for barter, honestly, if there was a way that we could do barter. Um, they're just awesome. And you want to talk about a company that I love, though. I've been a customer since 1993. I'm serious. I, I Well, let's see. I've been a subscriber since 1994. I started reading it, and I bought my first couple copies of it back in 93 when I got out of the Army at a place called Barnes & Noble Booksellers when people used to go to bookstores. If you, you stay a customer or something from 1993 to 2020, pretty easy to endorse. Check them out today, and you'll see why I love them so much at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, with that... Let's um, let's dig on into this, and I want to start out, again, this is a, a, a cryptocurrency topic. So I've been uh, questioned about ARK quite a bit lately uh, as to if I'm still bullish on ARK. I discovered ARK a, a few years ago. I had one of the ARK uh, delegates uh, on the Survival Podcast, and we talked about ARK as a whole and the things that it could do and the project itself. And that was during the big cryptocurrency run-up. So I have ARC that I paid significantly more for than, than it's worth now, that I'm still holding. And I bought it on the way down, including well below where it is now. But it, it's not been the best pure trade of my life. And uh, I think some of y'all might have done the same thing and bought it when it was a few bucks, and now it's what, 40 cents or something like that. So uh, you might think that would turn me off. And the, and the truth is, I love ARC. And, and I really do. I love the project, and I love what it's doing. I want to be clear about something, though. I like it for a totally different reason than I like something like Pirate Chain, a.k.a. R-A-R-R-R, right? Um, Pirate Chain I love because of a lot of the stuff that's going on the back side of it, but really it's the fact that it is the most private cryptocurrency that you could ever use. It is impossible to crack. It is, it is a true 100% privacy coin and it's awesome and that's that's a big part of why I love it. ARC is not like you are not using a privacy coin if you use ARC as a currency so well why do I love it? Well there's you know there's a place for both worlds in my opinion especially when I look at it from an investment standpoint. So what has me most excited about ARC is the amount of things they're getting done in the project itself and in two specific areas. One is in actually obtaining relationships with companies to build product on blockchains for them. Because that's what everybody talks about. We're going to do this for this industry and that for that industry. And ARC's like, a, we're going to build a technology that makes it easy to deploy blockchains and we're going to do it for anybody that wants to do it and actually build blockchains. Not all blockchains are about, I'm going to make a new token and trade it and, and make money on it, right? It, there, and that's not all that blockchain can do. We're heading for a society where blockchains will be the number one way that information is exchanged, stored, and tracked. So here would be a couple examples of how a blockchain might be used, you know, 
using the ARC framework for it. You might use it for supply chain management. Every item within a company is basically represented by a token, and that token can then be tracked everywhere that it goes. You can kind of figure out for yourself how that might be beneficial. Airlines might use tokenization to organize flights and planes and inventory and parts. There's a lot of ways that tokenization can be used. You can use it as a currency that's not designed to actually trade on an exchange or actually go external from a company. It can basically be used for internal accounting. You could build a blockchain in a large organization that allows different departments for interdepartmental expenses to have their expenses accounted for in a fully audible and completely controlled way. So that if, if you know marketing does something for the widget department, then at the end of the month with that auditing and then pre-approval, and we can say these departments have, have this much discretionary for interdepartmental spending, and then that you can be given that in a wallet, and then they can use that for transactions, and then the accountants actually pay the bills at the end of the month. Everything's auditable. There's no him and haw about who did what or what have you. That could be incredibly valuable. A company could run a rewards program using blockchain, using something more like a conventional cryptocurrency coin or token, but so that it's only redeemable for certain things in certain places. A large, let's say a large liquor store chain decided they wanted to run a loyalty program. They could run that on blockchain. It would be immediately auditable. You could set your own parameters and rules. It would be highly secure. You know, it would be a great way to run a loyalty program. There's literally unlimited uses for blockchain. And ARC's building them. But it's how they're building them and how they're going to be building them going forward that really has me excited. So ARC is releasing the latest version of their product called Deployer this month. Supposedly by the end of the year, before the end of the year, it will be the new version will be released. And they've been really good at either making their time commitments when they say we're going to have this done by here either hitting that mark or if they don't hit it they're really close there may be a few you know a few days few weeks where i've seen a lot of projects we're going to have this done by you know q3 of 2020 and freaking 2024 well we're still working on it like art's been great about getting it done and they already have a version before but this new one is even better deployer what does that mean to deploy it is an automated way to do 90% of the work of deploying a blockchain by filling out a form and setting parameters. Instead of starting out with, here's what we'd like our blockchain to do, and paying a bunch of coders a shitload of money to make you a blockchain, or forking some other blockchain, you're actually able to just develop and deploy a blockchain by filling out a form. And then, you know, well, if you need nodes on your blockchain because you're going to do a community project like a typical cryptocurrency, and you just, you're running something like a loyalty program, here's where you can buy nodes for $40 a month. Interesting, isn't it? All of a sudden, that loyalty program, you know, you probably don't need 51 delegates to run a freaking loyalty program, do you? You know, maybe four or five nodes could run a loyalty program just fine. It's not something you have a huge concern about fraud with because you can really dial in and tighten down on it, right? You're not talking about making currency trades between France and freaking Belgium here. We're just talking about running a loyalty program for customers only. So you can upsize, downsize how much you need as far as expense of running the back end of it. And, oh, you know what? If you uh, if you want someone to customize it, here's people that can do that. But, hey, we're the ones that built the tool. Maybe you could hire us to do it for you. You know what that is? 
That is the open source software model applied to blockchain. What I'm telling you is I think it's not a guarantee here. Understand, I don't do this whole, you know, put a bunch of money in here, you're going to get rich. I don't, I don't do that. But when I look at all the projects out there, and there's other people trying to be this component in the blockchain space, I don't see anybody doing it as well. Certainly not any place where they have a real shot at it, and you're looking at sub $1, let alone sub $10 cost. You're going to have a $0.40 cent range uh, on ARC tokens. So I think that what they, they most look like to me is WordPress. They look like they're trying to be the WordPress of blockchain. So today, if you want a website and you want to set up a WordPress website, you can basically buy hosting. It comes with a thing in the back end. You fill out a form and click go, and there's your blog published. And then there's all types of developers and stuff built around that, and WordPress can provide certain things for commercial use, etc. And WordPress is an incredibly successful organization. I believe if you were creating WordPress for the first time today, you'd be crazy if you didn't do it with a tokenization component to it. Right? These guys are trying to take that model to the world of blockchain. You want a blockchain company XYZ? Fill out this form and 95% of the work is done. You have an operational prototype in less than an hour with no coding, without writing one line of code. And it'll only get better. Because I'll tell you what, think of how WordPress used to be if you can remember back that long ago. We're talking, you know, 15 years ago. When you installed a WordPress blog, you had to download all the files and then you uploaded them to your server and you had to set some permissions and you had to do all kinds of stuff. And then, voila, there was a, but it was the easiest way in the world to host your own blog, but it was still complicated. Then, you know, when you needed an upgrade because they come up with a new version, you'd have to download that and overwrite files and do all that stuff. And you had to upgrade your blog and you needed to do backups and everything. And it was complicated. And there were people that would charge you, like, once you got good at it, you could do it in a few minutes. So there were people who charge like 50 bucks just to upgrade people's blogs. And then that got automated away. And those jobs went away, right? I mean, the little contract work people had, they had maybe 20, 30 people. They were making every time there was an upgrade, they were, you know, making. 500, 600 bucks off of, and all of a sudden they're not? Yeah, because they made it to where you just clicked a button and installed it, and you said upgrade, click, upgrade. Now they have it. You know, If you have to set your blog up right, your blog upgrades itself. But the reason everybody uses WordPress is they got there first. They got their foot in the door of being the easiest way, even when it wasn't perfectly easy. So that's where I see ARC, and that's a big part of why I love ARC still today. Additionally, if you're going to hold ARC, All you have to do is hold it in your ARC wallet, you can elect a delegate, and you can earn a return. It's called staking, but it's called delegated proof of stake. So you are delegating your staking to a particular delegate, in effect voting for them, so that they can be a delegate. And there's 50, 51 or 53 of them. And I pick one you know, near the top on the payouts, and I make about 8% on my ARC. That's right, 8%. Now, I'm going to hold it anyway, So why, and this is not like a lot of the staking, like DeFi staking and stuff like that, where you have to lock your money up and there's a penalty for early withdrawal. Like, this is you hold it in your own wallet, you elect a delegate, you earn a return. And, you know, if you only have a little bit, you earn a little return, and it might pay out once a week or once a month, depending on how little you hold. If you hold a significant amount like I do, you get paid every day. You have a payout come from your delegate back to your wallet. And it compounds. It adds to your balance, and it increases your stake, and it increases your payout over time. Cool, huh? And, well, what if you want to spend some of it? You spend it. It doesn't matter. 
If you had 10,000 ARK sitting in a wallet and you spent 5,000 of it and it was all staked, the next day you only have 5,000 or 500 or 5, whatever it is. And if somebody were to send you ARK, like you took it as payment and you received it into that address that's staked, it adds to your stake. I don't know of another currency that has this much going for it, that has this much opportunity. Now, final thought, do not go out and buy a shitload of any cryptocurrency just because Jack Spear goes that he likes it. It's not an endorsement in that I think you should invest your money in this. I think you should be aware of this and you should check it out and you should fully understand it. And if everything makes sense to you after that, you might consider adding it to your crypto portfolio. Again, I'm not one of these people that's here to tell you how to Lambo and go to the moon. That's not my purpose in life. That's not what cryptocurrency is all about for me. But I really love the privacy coin space and I really love the space of innovation. I love Pirate Chain because it's both. But I love ARC because it's massive on innovation, and they're really great at communicating what they're doing well. And Deployer? Deployer is a game changer. Deployer is going to become the thing that when any IT head is told, hey, we need to look at putting a blockchain in place here to do this task, they can go fill a form out and tomorrow go back to their boss or an hour later go back to their boss and say, here's a prototype. What would you do if you were that IT person tasked with that task. And if you develop a whole system of people that can customize and develop around that so that you have that support mechanism, think of plugins in WordPress, right? You want your site to do this thing now. There's a plugin for that. That's the model arcs taking. It's really worth taking a look at. Not promising anything, but that's why I'm still bullish on arc. Uh, with that, guys, um, again, that will be a video of about 12 minutes long and available for sharing or watching individually as well. But it, it is something that I do see a lot of potential value coming out of. Moving on, let's talk about, unfortunately, COVID for a minute. I say unfortunately because it's just become such a dominant thing in our lives that I think we're, we're maybe we're actually letting it be more dominant than it should. And I'm not just talking about defying lockdowns, but I'm all for that. But uh, JP here says, I work in a field that will eventually require me to take the COVID vaccine, what can I do to reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine and the metals in the vaccine? I am already being offered a vaccine voluntarily now as part of Operation Warp Speed. I think when he says reduce the effectiveness of the uh, uh, the vaccine, he means effects of the vaccine. I don't think he'd actually, if it does work, hey, at least you got that going for you. So I don't think he really means reduce the effectiveness, rather to reduce the effects, the side effects. You know, dude, I don't know. And before I say anything here to mitigate concern, I want to be very clear. Jack Spierko is not, 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 never getting the COVID vaccine. My wife today said, hey, look, they're saying that you might have to get the vaccine to be able to fly on an airplane. I'm like, then we will drive to Florida. I will not yield on this one. And I'm certainly not going to be part of like the first wave of people to get it. Like If 50 million people get this vaccine and everybody that gets it is like, hey, you know what? It wasn't that big a deal and I didn't get COVID now and I don't have side effects and I don't have, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and we don't have sterility popping up in women or whatever, and everything works out hunky-dory year or two from now, if COVID's still around and that's the case, maybe we can talk about it. Otherwise, not, 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 never. Okay? And I realize, though, that you can, you can put your life into a place where you can say that and be confident in it 
And it doesn't mean that somebody else can just flip a switch. So JP may be in a situation where if he doesn't do this, it will economically destroy him. And I can understand that. Maybe he loves his job. Maybe he needs his job. I get that. So I will say the first thing is, I do not think that we're going to have people dropping over and dying like flies from the COVID vaccine. I don't think that's going to be the case. I sadly might be wrong, but I don't think so. I do know that they are already saying that the government and doctors need to be honest with patients that, and this is a quote, the side effects of the vaccine are no walk in the park, end quote. What the hell does that mean? That means it's like getting COVID. That's basic. When I read what people are saying they've experienced after the vaccine, it sounds like somebody with a mild version of COVID. Funny that. Without necessarily the, like, I haven't heard anybody that had breathing problems. The, the breathing part, no, but like the aches, the pains, the nausea, etc. Like, it sounds, and, and you have to get two. Huh. And so, what I haven't heard is anybody that says, because you know, usually you hear you have these side effects to vaccines like this, the, the pain and, and whatever. But there's a shitload of people that don't have any. So, when I was in the military, for instance, I mean, when you go in the military, you get whatever they give you. And when you're 17, like I was, you just line up and do what you're told. But I got this massive array of, of vaccinations. And other than a little bit of pain at the injection site, which could be, you know, could, you could have injected with saline with those stupid air guns and had that, I had no side effects. There were people that had some pretty nasty side effects of that, but there were plenty of people that had none. None. I mean, just zero. And I've had vaccinations in my life and had no reaction to them whatsoever. I have yet to hear from anybody. I've heard from quite a few people that have been in the trials that say I had no side effects. That concerns me a great deal. That concerns me a great deal. We haven't anybody die we know of or whatever. Now, we've had people in other nations' trials say some really bad... I think somebody was suing today about encephalitis um, over in Europe with, with one of the vaccines. I don't know if it was the same one in the United States. So I think that most people that get the vaccine will probably be fine, maybe. I hate to put it that way, but I, I can't say that I know that. I, and I, here's the other thing is... I have not yet been able to determine the exact ingredients in each vaccine. I haven't seen that data. He says metals. Are there going to be metals? Is there going to be aluminum and mercury in, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine? I don't know. I didn't dig real, real deep, but I couldn't actually just easily find out. Now, I know that most vaccines no, long, most vaccines no longer contain thimerosal, which is mercury. And that was due to directly due to public backlash and outcry. And they said, oh, it doesn't hurt nothing, but oh, we're going to take it out. Except for, I think, one of the flu vaccines is the one they give pregnant mothers. Great. Good job, guys. And then aluminum. Aluminum <clears throat> is used in vaccines because this is what they say. This is not what I say. It has been shown that it can increase immunoresponse, probably because it's an aggravating metal that doesn't belong in your body, Uh, so it stresses the body and causes a higher response to whatever's in the vaccine that causes the response. And I'm, I, I have some real issues here with this vaccination process because there's some conflict in me about the methodology. This is an mRNA-sequenced vaccine. 
It is not we take the virus and weaken it or kill it and give it to you so you get a natural response. It's we actually do coding to trick your body into believing that it's been exposed and we teach it to develop a specific immuno response to this disease. Okay? So what they're actually doing is they're using in some ways like synthetic coding to cause the immuno response. And so the side effects are actually the immuno response. In other words, how you would feel if you were infected and your body was fighting off the illness. Feeling just the immuno response. That's what it theoretically should be, and it may be. I don't know. I don't claim to know this shit. Um, the conflict is, this is one of the greatest technologies ever developed. It really is. Not for vaccinating people from a virus with a 99.97 survival rate, but as a technology. Because <clears throat> where it came from is cancer. And what this technology was actually designed to do is we could take a person with a specific cancer and take some of that cancer from them and then specifically train their immune system to attack that specific cancer in their own body. To literally develop an on-the-fly vaccination that's really less of a vaccination and more of an immune, immunostimulus for a patient with a cancer where you would not get... If there's somebody laying next to you in a bed with the exact same cancer at the exact same stage, would have theirs developed from their cancer and then teach the body, attack this thing. And it's shown great promise and it may lead to incredible strides in survival rates from cancer. And what I feel like when I look at this, I feel like the American public looking at the space program and not understanding it was being used to develop ICBM nuclear missiles and kind of a reverse of that like you have this great life-saving technology that's now being used to develop vaccines that causes this acute immuno response so all I can say when you say well what do you do about it if you if you if you've just accepted the fact I'm gonna have to do this number one I would say get get your body as clean as possible before you're vaccinated so I'm a big believer in the ketogenic lifestyle at least low carb paleolithic, no processed foods, etc., so that you're already starting with as good of a, a blank slate as that you can, being the best health you can. If, if you were already sick, I would not get this while you're sick because illness plus side effect adds greater, right? So try to be in the best health that you can. And then when it comes to removing heavy metals, that's a function of, the, of diet, and there is some cleansing and detoxifying herbs and things that you can try that seem like maybe they would work. You could look at chelation therapy with a practitioner if you wanted to uh, long term. That does work for some people that seem to have, from other reasons, certain heavy metal toxicities. But, but our bodies tend to actually do a pretty good job of getting rid of, of these things anyway if we stop adding them to ourselves. It's not 100% on that, but it's, it is the case that just because you have a heavy metal toxicity issue doesn't mean you always will. And there, there's plenty of examples of people that were consuming way too much fish with mercury in it that just 
made that dietary change and their body over time did rectify that. Our bodies are actually pretty amazing in what they're able to do. Though, again, at some levels and some substance, some levels of toxicity, something like chelation may be necessary. Um, I don't think you're going to have that level from a single course of this vaccine. But I don't know. How could I possibly know? I haven't seen the daggone ingredients list. It hasn't been approved yet. I guess it has been approved now. I don't know. I tried to find it today. I couldn't find, like, what are all the ingredients in the COVID vaccine? I don't know. That's another reason you're not giving it to me. Like, if you don't tell me what's in it, you don't get to put it in my body. I'm sure that'll change. I'm sure we'll be finding out soon all the crap that's in there. Um, but that, I'm sorry I don't have better advice, but I, I I'm just going to tell you that there's no way I'm going to be kind of the first wave of this. Like, no way at all. I... I don't think I'll ever change my mind. But being a reasonable, logical person, I'll say that it could happen. It could happen. But it's going to take a lot of track record for me to change my mind on this. And and my gut is the more people that get it, the more reasons not to get it we're going to see. And I, I don't want to say anything else about what I think is going to happen from it as far as side effects. I'm in pure speculation mode. But I've seen some talk of it causing potential sterility. And God, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy hat, you know, tinfoil hat person, but the people behind this, I would not put it past them to do that intentionally. Because population control is something they're very, very into. But I don't want to go any further with that right now. Because I, all I have is speculation and claims. And when I look at the claims being made, about, you know, this person objected and said this is going to happen and what have you. When I read, there was one that was like that. It was a, supposedly it was like filed in court in Europe. When I read the underlying court filing, the word sterility or anything related to it was not in the court filing. It was about general safety. But yet there was all this statement that this was proof. So I got to have proof before I say there's proof. Let's take another one. But the last little note on heavy metal toxicity and this is going to be something some of you will be, oh, it's easy. And then some of you will be like, that tastes like feet. Cilantro. The herb that's shown the greatest potential to help people detox of heavy metals, assuming it's you know organically grown and safe to eat in the first place, is small amounts of cilantro almost daily. That it has a, a, a significant detoxifying effect. Uh, next up, real quick, cover this one for you. Uh, there's an article out today uh, on fee.org. Homeschooling more than doubles during the pandemic. I'm not going to read it and make the show longer or whatever. You can uh, you can do that for yourself if you want to. There's a link in the show notes. But um, I just want to talk a little bit about why this is only a start. I said very early on in this pandemic, before we even got into the summer, when we were still dealing with people like finishing up their school year with distance learning with their kids. So they were doing, you know, anywhere between eight and four weeks, depending on when schools got shut down in your area. The majority of people in this country experienced their children going to school at home in the spring into early summer. And I said right then, this will be the most explosive growth of homeschooling that you will ever have seen. It will be more than you ever thought it could be. And when I say homeschool, I mean homeschool, not going to school at home, still attached to the state. And double, you know, you're talking 100% growth. That is beyond what most trends ever do, unless you're looking at a megatrend. It, it tends to be that only megatrends have that kind of 
amazing growth, unless you're looking at something like a pet rock that's going to soar and flop. This is a, a, a way of living, and people are now seeing what their children look like when their children are engaged in learning instead of programming. I'm sorry, I don't care how much you love teachers. I have teachers in my family, and I love them as people, and I love what they, how committed they are to doing what they think is right. Okay, But there is no doubt, I don't care how good the teacher is in our current system, the education system is an indoctrination system. And I, I you know, you could even take out like the 1619 project and all this shit that people are losing their minds over. I don't care so much about that as I care about the overriding indoctrination, children being programmed to 100% accept authority. That's what the system's really designed. You do things our way, we tell you if you did it right, instead of being judged on merit, you're judged on compliance. That's, that's what the system is. And the system cannot adapt to individual learning. When you take 30 kids and put them in a room together, you ask a teacher to teach them, she has to teach to the level of the bottom third of the class. She can't teach to the lowest student. So that's why some just get left behind. But you have to teach to the bottom third. And you have to. I'm not blaming a teacher for that. How else are you going to teach 30 students? In the current model, that's the only thing you can do is teach to the bottom third, which means your top two-thirds either naturally excel or they go to sleep. And they don't pay attention, they lose interest. And that splits into about another third and a third. And you can look at how grades come out, and you can look at bell curves, and you can look at the success of students inside the system, and you can see that very clearly. You can see about a third do poorly because they're not able to keep up, even though they're being taught to their level, because it's not quite to their level. You can see about a third do really, really well, and you can see about a third are really smart kids that do poorly on paper. And you can't break that. Because what we're doing, again, is we're conditioning students. And what, uh, the other thing parents have seen over and over and over now Give the kid the work. Kid does the work in two hours. Kid has the rest of the day to be a kid. Okay, so what are you doing with my kid for the other seven hours? Why is my child giving up seven hours a day of their life when what they actually need to be doing to learn takes about you know, two of the nine hours that you have my child in total? Transportation, home and back, etc. Plus, you know, their, their kids are coming out of their shell because the kid that was bullied is no longer being bullied. And we're learning about all these other ways that our children can learn. Um, my wife has been adding to both my, my granddaughter is too young for you know, conventional kindergarten level school yet. And my grandson, who's doing fantastic with Excellus, um, little pieces of thing called out school. And just picking individual courses for them. They might be one day or a couple, three days. My grandson just took one on how to turn $100 into a million dollars. You know, what he, you know what he did immediately after it was over? He was sitting down thinking about what kind of a business he could start. That's freaking amazing to be that age and start to think that way. My, my granddaughter's taking one a day on polar bears and learning about you know the Arctic and things like that without a political agenda attached to it. She's four and a half. She's having a blast. I had to go out and turn her, uh, her computer down a little bit so you guys couldn't hear it in the background. It, it's just... So much better, and people are seeing it. And as people see it, and as people talk about it, it's only going to spread. And you're going to see, 
like I said, massive layoffs in the public education sector. It's coming. And the, the, the unions are a part of it. And the unions know it's coming. And the unions need to get rid of a bunch of you teachers. The union you think is your friend is your enemy because they ain't going nowhere. And that's why they're dragging their feet. They're, they're, they're scaring the shit out of teachers. They're encouraging lockdowns. They're encouraging school closures because they know the longer it happens, they want to go ahead and get it done. They want to go ahead and cut the, the portion of the sector that needs to be cut, and they want to get rid of you and jettison your ass because they see it as a way to save what's left of their pension systems for themselves and for those of you that get to hang on. You think I'm kidding? Okay, go ahead. If you're a teacher, go ahead and bet that I'm kidding. All I can say is you better be in the top half of kissing ass, not not capability, if you want to stay in that system. If you don't know how to work that system, you're going to be one of the ones on the way out the door, and it's going to be way quicker than you think. Let's take another one. So this next one is about wallet backups, and this is specific to the Jack's wallet, probably because I mention it so frequently. But I don't care what wallet you use. Specifically, light wallets, multi-currency wallets, etc. You're going to have this backup phrase. And Jack, other Jack, wrote in to me from Georgia to talk about this. And he goes through the technical way that it works. But here's what you need to know if you're if you're going to because there's so many of you guys just starting to get into cryptocurrency, and I'm seeing people make some pretty critical errors on their own security for their own funds with this. When you set up a wallet. It will create a backup phrase for you. All right. Oh, and I need to tell you something else. Apparently, there are some fake Jack's wallets in the Google Play Store that when you open the app, the first thing they do is ask you for your phrase because you're restoring a you know a, a existing wallet, and you stick it in, they get your phrase, it never works, and they steal your money. So if you're going to download a wallet, you need to make damn sure you're dealing with the official wallet people that provide the wallet that you're downloading, Jax, Coinami, etc. And the way to do this is go to their website instead of looking up in the App Store and then click their link from their official website to their particular wallet for your needs. So you'll see like the iOS version, you know, for 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 the iPhone on the Jax.io website. So just want to throw that in there. But here's the last paragraph of what Jack wrote. Um, keeping those 12 words in a safe place is all you need to do to keep a backup. If you could memorize them, everything is stored in your head. Maybe more practical to write them down on paper, laminate it, store in a safe, safe deposit box, or both. To borrow from one of your ideas, how about using book code? Instead of writing down your 12 words, write down the book code, page, and word number where they are found in the book you can remember. Then you can carry a laminated card around with you as well as keeping a copy in your safe. Uh, and all you need to do is remember the book and the printing much easier than memorizing 12 words. So let's talk about book code real quick so we understand this. If you can't find another exact copy of that book and that book goes away, it's just as bad as losing the code and not having it recorded at all. Book code only works when you have the exact edition of the book. So if you're going to do that, you, you know what you do is you buy like the cheap, you know, copy of like the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe or something for like $2.99. Buy like four of them. Right? Because book code, if we're sending messages back and forth, the only works if we both have a copy. All right? But I mean, that's like, if, if that book goes away and you can't get that printing again, you can have all the book code you want and it's useless to you because the, the next 
printing run might have the pages be a little bit different or something like that. So let's be careful with that. So I want to just talk about what isn't a good idea when it comes to backing up your, your, your seed phrase, which is what this is. He says 12 words. And with the Jack's Wall, yes. But a lot of different walls will have different numbers of words. I think Ark has like 16. I think the Pirate Light Wallet has like 16. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Okay, so what most people will do is when you start the wallet up the first time, it will give you your phrase. Or it will give you in like multiple screens your phrase. So they'll copy it if the wallet allows that. Some of them don't because it's security as well. And then they'll, you know, control C, control V it into like a text file and save it on their computer. Okay, so if you get hacked, a sophisticated hacker is going to know when they see a list like that what it is. Now, they still have to know what it, you know, if you have somebody's phrase, but you don't know what currency, what wallet, etc., it, 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 it's, it's a problem. I'll just put it that way. Like, you got to figure out where it goes. Like, is this for Bitcoin? Is this for a multi-currency wallet? Is this for ARC? What have you. Um, but a lot of times that can be figured out anyway. Once they know your phrase, they can start trying it in different places. So we need to protect it. So if it's on a computer, it can be hacked if your hard drive gets hacked, etc. So the bigger problem, though, I see people do is they install a wallet on their computer. Then they copy that phrase into a text file they save on the same computer. If something happens to that computer, you've, okay, now you've lost your wallet and your text file. So even if it's going to be on some kind of a machine somewhere with some sort of higher level of protection... It needs to be in a different place. If it's on this, if you have two things in the same box, and something happens to the box, you have no redundancy. When you when you put cables in, so if we're putting a network in, and we're going to have two fiber lines for redundancy, let's say, if we run them along the same route, we have far less redundancy than if they take independent routes. So think that way. Some ways you can, if you have your phrase printed out on something, protect it. As long as you remember what you did or have some way to remind yourself of what you did, you can always add words to the front and back end of it. That would be one way you could do it. Another thing you could do is you could take your phrase and then put a certain number of spaces in between each word and invent an actual sentence, phrase, something with the words. So if you had four spaces between each word, every fourth word in that really kind of weird Mad Libs style thing would be a word that's part of your phrase. And then you could memorize that phrase a lot easier than memorizing 12 words. We tend to memorize stories and things like that. When in the course of human events, right? You know, when, you, when you turn something into actual communications, it's easier to remember. But never trust your brain. You still need a physical backup somewhere. That's, that's really important. This is one of those things we should probably... Someday do a whole series on getting started with cryptocurrency, but really understand how important that phrase is, those words are. If you wanted to make it even more complex, you could create a story using the words spaced out every fourth or fifth or sixth words, but you could flip them around. So then if you wrote down the story and knew that it was a four, there could even be a number four somewhere to remind you of that. You'd also know it has to be flipped around. But bigger than all of this, okay, once you, you're talking more than a few hundred bucks, 
You know, you don't. When you start talking tens of thousands of dollars, you better think about something like you know a Trezor or something like that, cold storage wallet, that type of thing. But beyond all this, somewhere or sometime in this, you need to go over with your loved ones. If I die, here's how you get all the money. Here's how it works. Show them how to do it. You know, show them. Let's take a, a, an empty computer, or an empty phone, or something like that. Let's install the wallet, and here's how you put the phrase in and do it. Even if you delete it, so they've done it. Because imagine you're sitting there with, you know, you do well. You got a couple quarter million bucks in, in cryptocurrency. You die. Okay. Does anybody know how to get it? Or does it just disappear? It's not like a bank account. No one's going to make a phone call. Say, hey, hey, did you know this was over here? You see what I'm saying? You've got to really think about this and be careful with what you're doing with it, especially as your assets increase. Uh, next up, this is from Jared. Jared says, how do I convert a patch of Bermuda grass into a garden bed? We're installing a 4 by 12 garden bed in our backyard that is currently the Bermuda grass lawn put in by a builder. I put down a tarp to try to kill the grass, but I know Bermuda grass is stubborn and wonder if your thoughts should be removed manually or with a type tarp take care of it over the winter. In the spring, we will install a border and add soil to make a raised bed. I would love to hear your thoughts and any other suggestions for building a new garden bed. Thanks for all you do, and I hope you have a restful, relaxing holiday. I do too, Jared. I'm looking forward to my shutdown, which is coming faster than I realize, I think, here. Um, so... Number one, I think it's great that if you're going to do a garden where you have Bermuda grass, you're planning on eventually some sort of a border and a raised bed. Okay, Now, 4 by 12 garden, that's fine. That's easy. It's a double reach. It's perfect size. What I would really think about doing here, because Bermuda grass is damn near Satan, is, okay, so you have a tarp down. Great. That tarp, if it isn't right now, should be larger than your 4 by 12 footprint. So it needs to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, I would say, like 6 by 16 is the area you want to kill. And you really want to kill it, and you want to kill it good. And then, yes, I would still dig it up and double dig, turn it over, then install your raised bed. And I would not say it is out of line to consider taking something like pond liner material and cutting it so that it maybe goes an inch into all four sides of your bed and a foot out and then cover it with something like pea gravel or something like that to make it very difficult for Bermuda grass to incur into there, and you're still going to have to deal with it some. But that will stop at least the rhizomes from coming directly in. You might even come out a foot and then dig a, like a narrow trench all the way around a foot out and tuck your liner down so that it comes, thinks about it coming out a foot and going down about four or five inches into the ground. Because Bermuda grass, when it comes to gardens, is Satan. It's Satan incarnate. You're going to provide all this nutrient and all this irrigation. And Bermuda grass is a honey badger. It's a survivor. If you live in the south, you watch every year. It turns brown. It looks like it dies right in the, in the winter. And then it doesn't go away. It just stays there like brown turf. 
And not only does it come back in the spring, it seems like a lot of the brown part just turns green again. We see it every year here. We have tons of Bermuda on our property. And when it doesn't rain in the summer, it all dies. And you get two or three good good rains in a row, and it all just comes back. It's, it's amazing as a turf, and that's why people use it. But now you give it, you see, grass, unlike a lot of weeds, grass loves fertility. A lot of times you can combat weeds just by getting really, really, really fertile, and a lot of your weeds will stop spontaneously germinating. Weeds, that, true weeds, tend to want to germinate in poor conditions. That's what because the, they're pioneers. Grass, you almost can't over-fertilize grass. Like if you've over-fertilized grass, you've over-fertilized vegetables. Grass loves fertilization. It loves moisture. And it loves friable soil. That's your garden. So you've got to keep it out and you've got to stay on it. What might actually be a good thing to do here beyond the tarp is to once before you go ahead and, 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 and actually plant your garden, pull your tarp up and put clear plastic down for a couple weeks in the sun and solarize it, basically cook it. It, it is that level of a satanic thing. Now, the thing about the pea gravel on top of the pond liner skirt, it'll work for a while. And the reason that it'll work is because there's no soil and it's going to get hot in the sun in the summer when the stuff grows as fast as point. The thing about pea gravel is, and that's why I don't know if it's really the best choice here, it builds soil. And almost anything you put down will build soil short of maybe a concrete, solid concrete skirt. And even that, this stuff will climb over, under, around, through, across, and stuff will build up on it. So the next thing you can do to have the best chance to have your garden not be full of this stuff is be careful of how you water. Water in the bed only. Because now you have pea gravel with no soil baking in the sun with no water. So as you get runners on it, most of the time it's literally going to get incinerated. And then it actually gets really easy to control with plain white vinegar and a sprayer. If it's in that condition already, you've blocked the bottom, you have something like a pea gravel for a media, right? And then there's no soil in there and it's hot and it's unirrigated and you start to get a little bit of incursion and you go through and you heavily spray just a little pump sprayer and, and plain old white vinegar, that acid will just do a number on it. It'll just knock it out. If you think you're going to control Bermuda grass that has soil to work with, with white vinegar, good luck, good luck. Um, that's, that's the best I can do. It is the hardest grass to deal with keeping out of your garden, and it is the most invasive pain in the ass once it gets into your garden and establishes itself. Next up, um, Karen asks, uh, Hi Jack, what would you suggest for people who might be interested in buying land as safekeeping for the future who are not yet ready to give up life in the suburbs or have an unconvinced spouse? Assuming you had funds or income to cover purchase, would you ever buy and hold rural or semi-rural property for safekeeping? How about something like hunting or hunting land or a cabin? Absolutely yes. My wife and I continuously are on the lookout for the right property to do this with. And there are various options you can consider for how to make that property do more than just sit there as a holding. And we'll get there in a second, but absolutely yes. Real estate, over time, is one of the best investments, as far as track record, ever in the history of the planet. 
So if you would have money sitting in the stock market or money sitting in real estate, I would say that in general, over time, real estate will tend to be a safer place for your money. Not always, but in general, over time. So holding land is holding an asset. Now, the big difference is <clears throat> if we're holding a stock, there's all we've done is tied up our money. Now, if we have dividends or something like that on it, and it's not in a tax-deferred status, we have income tax, right? But we have an income production method with tax uh, against that income. Land, the offside is that you have an expense on land, even if it's just raw land, that you don't do anything with because you have property taxes. But that's usually low enough that it's, it, especially with the type of land you're talking about, not that big of a concern. I think that... It, I look at land purchases for this when you're talking about this type of kind of rural land the way that I look at building like a bug out trailer. If it's only in case you need to bug out, you probably shouldn't do it. Like if you build a bug out trailer, you use it for camping, uh, you build a bug out trailer, but that trailer also actually is just a trailer that does work for you that you've designed so that if I need to bug out with it, here's how I quickly get it into bug out status. Like those two types of methodologies make sense. Does that, you see what I'm saying there? So if we're only going to buy land to hold it, I, I don't know that I hate that idea, but I don't like it. Is it maybe a better way to put it? So it's not that I hate it, I just don't like it. I'd rather that do something for me. So to me, the best thing is to buy land that's close enough to you, if possible, that you can easily go there on a day trip. So three hours is a pretty good distance by car for that. If you can be somewhere in three hours, just look at the basic formula for going and spending a day there doing some work on a Saturday if you wanted to do that. You could leave at 6 o'clock in the morning, be there at 9 o'clock. You could be there from 9 to 5 and still be home by 8. Now, that's a long day, but it's doable. Every hour you add to that commute time makes that a more difficult decision to do. Having land that is a deer lease, a vacation cabin, anything like that, to me, now I've got the investment and I've got utility. Additionally, if you have it set up so that it can be done through Airbnb, that's great. Hip camp, things like that. I think there's a lot of utility there. I think one, one thing that could be done really well with these properties that's a lower investment threshold than cabins or what have you is kind of glamping camping sites and using something like hip camp. I think that's a totally valid thing. And I think this is a way that you win over a spouse. Um, Glenn Tate, who of course wrote the 299 Days series, some of you maybe you're new to the show don't know this, he got his start in our forum as one of our moderators when we first established the Survival Podcast Forum way back in 2008. And the story in 299 Days about the guy gets the cabin, the wife doesn't want a bug-out location, but it's a vacation cabin, and rich people have vacation cabins, and rich people put solar panels up because you know that's what they do, and it still fits in with the dinner party conversation. That's all real. The cabin's a real place that Glenn actually had, that actually kind of fits in exactly the way it was described. And when he was looking at getting that place, he had opportunity, he came up to get it, he actually asked about it in the forum. It's exactly what I said. I said, rich people have solar panels. People that have dinner parties have solar panels. It's chic, it's in, it's green. Don't try to convince the spouse that you need this place in case the zombies come. 
It's just a vacation cabin. Don't make it anything more than that. It now also is a bug-out location. So I think that is a totally valid way. Now, as we look at a future where I think acquiring this land is going to become more difficult, it's going to make it worth more money and more difficult for you to do later. So holding it now, because that reluctant person may decide at some point, you know what, we really like it there, and this sucks. And I'm going to invoke somebody here that seems to have nothing to do with this, but it's a perfect example of how things change. So a few months ago, Sal Mayweather, that I'm on Unloose the Goose with, I was listening to his show, The Agorist, and he was talking about the fact that we had just done an Unloose the Goose, and he said, and I told Spirico, you don't run away. Right, and he, he went, and, and I'm not mad at him. I, I love the guy. He's he's a really cool dude. Um, but you know, he was talking about basically being an agorist in in the city, and and how like that's where a lot of opportunity is and stuff. And you know, he's not going to run away. And like a, a month later, he announces he's moving to Florida. Now I don't blame him, and I'm not holding it against him, and I'm not saying this to pick on him in any way. I'm just pointing out what actually happened here and why it actually happened. So what, what happened is real simple. Sal got tired of being locked down. Sal got tired of having no personal life. He didn't run away. He just reevaluated the situation and went, hey, my life would be better in a state like Florida than a state like New Jersey, which uh, pretty much was always the case, but now became more the case. So all I'm saying is those that have reluctant spouses investing in land now as a bug-out location, as a vacation location, as a, an income source, um, as a holding. It may very well be the case that in the future, as things change, your spouse will change. And the best way to do that is make that place as comfortable and inviting to them as possible. Don't try to sell them on it. Don't try to push them on it. Just go there and spend time there. And, and, and let it do its own work. Because one of the things I have to say with reluctant spouses in any of this stuff, if you push, you will lose. If you sell, you will lose. If you try to convince against the will of the partner, you will lose. They will resist harder against you than anybody else. There's the... The meme that's made from some movie somewhere where the person sits the plate down in front of the person and the other person picks the plate up and throws it down the hallway. And it's like wife with husband's opinion and the plate goes down the hallway and wife with anybody else's opinion. She's like, it's like, it switches to like the elf guy eating spaghetti, shoving it in his face or something. And there is some legitimacy to that. And it's all summed up in a prophet hath no honor in his own country. So... If you want to make a remote property work, not just as an investment, but for a partner, then you need to think about the partner's needs, wants, and desires. So, And I think you can almost always make that work unless the person just wants nothing to do with owning land. Like, that's just stupid, and I don't, and then I, I don't know where to go from there. Like, I'm not Dr. Phil, I'm not a miracle worker either, um, but most of the time, people like things like vacations, and places to get away, and places to relax. That's why people pay money to go do it. So having your own place, you can do that, and making it very accommodating would be the advice that I would give you on the partner side of that issue. But what I can tell you is, like, Dorothy and I have always been open to getting more land and all, but she's getting more hot on this than me right now. The more that this crap continues, the more she's like, I wish we, I wish we were further out. We, we need to find some land. And like, like, So she's becoming more like me, right, without me pushing, because... 
The situation is making that happen. And I think that's going to happen to a lot of people. And that's the opportunity. People right now that would like, oh, I'm never leaving. And all this, like, I mean, if you would have talked to Sal this midsummer, ah, you know, this, we're going to get through this. And, and like, he, he was more pessimistic on the lockdowns than a lot of people. It's like he thought it would, he's not one of these people like, it'll all go away after the election. Sure it will. Sure it will. Okay. Now, he didn't think that, but he just got fed up with it. He got fed up with it and said, instead of fighting it here, I can just go avoid it there, and he moved. So think about that happening to millions of people who all want to get a place outside of these flashpoint cities, all outside of these beltway suburbs, and think about the fact that the inventory will not match to the demand. It can't. There's not enough of it there. The people that move early in those situations tend to win economically. So whether it's because you get the opportunity to leave at some point because you already have, or whether you get to trade that property with somebody that wants it more than you do at that point. Anyway, let's move on. I just want to say a little bit here toward the end of today's show about the importance of networks and groups and how it's going to become more and more important. And one of the best models I've seen of building these groups is Nicole Sauce and what she's doing there in the holler, where some of the people are being kind of like enticed in and they're part of the thing and whatever, and then there's other people there that aren't really in the inner group, but hey, we're going to be friendly and we're going to make sure that we know what each other has to offer and we're going to make sure that if, if someone needs somebody, they know who to talk to. And I think that model, along with the purpose-driven model, needs to kind of go together. I remember, I think it was our first ever Unloose the Goose episode, we were talking about communities, either first or second, and Vin Armani was big on, you know, you have to know why and what and have everybody have the same ideals and like in, in that mindset And Nicole said, I don't think it even matters. Like, if the person down the road for me is someone I can have and engage in commerce with, and they're not going to be a problem for me, and I'm not going to be a problem for them, then that's enough. We don't have to all want to be agorists, to all be agorists, right? I, I put out a video today, my Miyagi Mornings today, was on how a lot of people are anarchists without knowing it, and specifically that agorism is a natural human state. Because it, unlike almost every other component that we, we, we break down to an ism, you have to have an imposition for the system to work. So taxation, right? So any form of statism requires taxation. And for taxation to take place, there has to be a system of imposition. Because if you just tell people, well, you can pay taxes if you want to, all the people that are so pro-tax, all of a sudden won't be pro-tax for them pay. They want, see, they want you to pay. They want rich, whatever rich means to them. They want, well, the rich people should pay. Well, what does rich mean? Because there's a lot of people who think you're rich, by the way, there, buddy. Right? But you have to impose that. And almost all systems within humanity are somehow imposed in some sort of hierarchy. Except agorism. It is a pure state of humanity. It's not something somebody invented. Somebody invented the terminology and the words and the explanation, but the action itself of engaging in trade is a natural human characteristic. And what I mean by that is you take two kids that both like baseball cards and have a bunch of baseball cards, and you put them in a room together, and you do nothing except facilitate the meeting each other, which could have happened naturally. <clears throat> and I bet you they trade cards. And they don't need you to help them. They don't need a third-party intermediary, and they're not going to pay a tax on the trade. right? They're just going to do it. And in every 
system or every place, I'm going to say system, throw system out, every place where humans have come into contact with other humans, eventually they establish trade with each other. Even when it's done from a hierarchy and somebody comes in and tries to rule and control, the people themselves develop systems of trade and commerce many times outside of the state's system. So when the imposition is actually to discourage trade, it still happens. Because it's a natural thing. It, you, you see it all the time. It happens out of a sense of reciprocity when it's not necessary. Right? So nobody really lines up to pay their taxes. That's a myth. It's voluntary. No, it's not. Don't pay and find out. Right? Okay? But what I mean by that is you get a situation where a neighbor notices the other neighbor's garden and says, wow, that's a beautiful garden. And they say, yeah, do you like... Uh, Jalapenos and eggplants, and the neighbor's like, well, yeah. I got more than I can use this year here, and they give it to them. And often that neighbor will be like, well, let me go get you some fill in the blank. And you're like, it's not, I don't, I don't need it. But they want, to re they want to provide reciprocity. We seek to balance things. And even if it's not a direct reciprocity, it buys goodwill. With anybody with decency and morals, it buys goodwill. That person is then going to look at you differently. You know, I have a friend, a good friend, and they keep some chickens right in the middle of suburbia where you're not supposed to. They do it in a very cool way that makes it not a problem and really doesn't cause any problems for anybody. And you'd have to you'd have to be pretty close to even ever notice that they're there. But it is technically illegal where this is going on. But that person gives away eggs to the direct neighbors, and the kids can come by and just get some eggs whenever they want to, and all of a sudden everybody's okay with it because the reciprocity in that situation is, yeah, you're not supposed to do this, but we benefit from it, so we don't care. Again, this is a natural state. And I think this is what you do the best to build the core of community on is commerce of some kind, reciprocity of some kind. And it doesn't always have to be... You know, I grow chickens and you pay me money or cryptocurrency or what for. It can be along the lines of, hey, you have a project that needs doing. I'll come help you. And when I have a project that needs doing, you come help me. That's actually a form of agorism. You know what you're trading there? Labor. You're trading labor. And, again, what what, what is the magic in this to me, Right? Is that we do this without being compelled to do so. Kids do this. All, and they're not just with baseball cards and shit. Kids do this all the time. They, If we get out of the way, and you don't have a Johnny Rotten in the mix, they work out equitable solutions amongst themselves all the time. You know, well, we're going to play at Billy's house today. Okay, well, then tomorrow we'll play at Tommy's house. Or, you know, they, they, they figure things out when, like, well, everybody's going to go out and get a hoagie. That's what we called them when I was a kid, right? It's their sandwich. And, and and Billy doesn't have enough money to buy a hoagie. Everybody kind of pitches in, but Billy kind of like you know when when things come around the other way, Billy's going to look out for his friends. Like this, this just is who we are. And the entire purpose of the state is to disrupt, regulate, and control that instinct. Everything they actually do is around the control of commerce. Everything. Everything. Well, no, they want to rule my life. Yes, to regulate and control commerce. Because that's the only way they make any money. This is, they don't produce a thing. The only way they, they, can, they can justify their existence and tax a thing 
is regulation and control. And that's why they've used it as their primary means of control. That's why the banks and the state have always been in an unholy marriage. Because each requires the other for that system to operate in a hierarchy. And the only way we're going to be able to design our lives around that level of control that is coming in things like the Great Reset, and there will only be partial implementation of it in the United States. Just because Klaus Schwab or whatever the hell his name is wants something, doesn't mean he gets it. Like, it's not like the World Economic Forum just to say the way things are going to be in Georgia. You, you need to kind of back off that a little bit. But a lot of this is coming because it's the harnessing of a megatrend. The way we're going to design around this is with support of mutual aid groups. And that is going to be always, 100% of the time, orbit around commerce of a sort. Think about any interaction you have with your friends. Think about a simple thing. You and your wife, or you and your husband, depending on who's listening today, decide that this other couple that you enjoy spending time with, it's time for y'all to go out and have dinner together. Very seldom in that situation, if both people have means, do you do Dutch. I pay for mine, you pay for yours. Right? Generally, somebody reaches for and picks up the check. What happens the next time you go out? What happens if you pick the check up this time, and the next time you go out, you try to pick the check up? What generally? No way. You got it last time. I got it this time. Right? Who, who enforces that? Who enforce like if, if if you go to pick the check up twice in a row and they don't say anything and you pick it up and you pay, what happens? Maybe somewhere in the back of your head you care and you like yeah, Bill should have picked up it. But let's say you don't. Let's say you're totally okay with it. Who 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 comes in and says, oh, wait a minute, Bill? Jack picked up the check last time. Bill, you cheap bastard, pick up the check. Who does that? Nobody. Nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, again, if both people have the means to do it, if I pick the check up this time, Bill picks up the check next time. It's completely self-organized. It requires no enforcement. And th that's what I'm saying. This is, And you, you keep examining interpersonal human relationships. And you always find at the core of groups some level of trading of value to value. Or you'll find some level of giving value because of inherent worth that you see in the other person. And, and understanding that that person maybe can't do as much as they used to. So I used to take garden vegetables to all of the older folks on my street where I, where I lived with my grandparents when I was really, really young and give it to them. We didn't do it with any expectation that it would ever come back. Because they had reached a point in their life where that's why we were doing it. It was a form of local charity completely and who enforced it who caused it? who said you know what mrs Katchmer doesn't have as much as she used to you spirico family you guys have a great big quarter acre garden you need to provide food to her who did that nobody she didn't ask i just got it my grandmother would just like load bags of shit up at the height of the harvest beyond what she wanted to can and beyond what we needed and write names on it and say you know what to do now the truth was All of those families had contributed to the community for so long. We still felt in their debt to a degree. That's, we didn't do it have a sense of debt or guilt. We, we valued them because of that. And no matter what you do, no matter how you try to break this formula, 
you will find people with a desire to provide value and to receive value at the core of all of these relationships. And that doesn't mean cutthroat capitalism. It doesn't mean anything like that. Everything I've been talking about is incredibly benign. You go out with a friend for drinks. They picked the tab up last, last time. You pick the tab up this time. No one enforces it. So as you're building groups, this is what to build groups on. Activities, and then commerce will form. Common interests and commerce will form. I, I, you know, I don't ever, I never understood the gaming, Dungeons and Dragons, shit like that, and all thing. But like when I got out of the army, my buddy and some of his family, they were into like um, this thing with Mac Robotech. They was like a like kind of like D and D, but they had little robot things and they rolled dice and this guy shot the other guy and shit and blew his arm off or whatever. And like all of me was like the adults moving little toys that they painted around. But there was a whole commerce built around that. Not just betting on games, there was things like, well, you know, I don't really need these little mech things anymore, so they were trade. Like, just every activity generates this sort of value-to-value -value trade and commerce. And that's why cryptocurrency is earth-shattering. That's why the government hates it. And on that note, last, you know, line item today, we have a new cryptocurrency group. It's only about a week old now. On MeWe, over 600 members. The biggest group I could find on MeWe for cryptocurrency ran had like about 1,500 members. We're a third of that a week. And it's a really cool group of experienced people and not-so-experienced people and what have you all working together. But I'm going to tell you what. I'm not going to say on air ever what's coming out of it. But I'm going to use it to build other groups that are built on commerce. You probably can understand why. It's only going to be said in private amongst members, right? Because it's a club. If you're not in the club, join the club. It's free. There's a link in the show notes today where you can find out more about the practical cryptocurrency discussion group on MeWe. And MeWe is really coming along, guys. Um, it's becoming my favorite platform for social media. Because unlike Parler, which really I'm struggling to pull those people out of, let's just keep posting things about Trump. Right, <laughs> I really am. But um, MeWe has groups and and chat and a dynamic, and it really is people exchanging commerce. Because even the exchange of ideas is an exchange of commerce. Bill pops up. Hey, I'm trying to figure out how to fill in the blank. Fred says, Hey, this is how you do that. If you don't understand that value was transferred there. I don't know what to say. Anyway, with that wrapped up, let me remind you, if you want to reciprocate some value, if you value the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast, one way you can reciprocate really easily, really easily, is do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. It's that time of year where people do a lot of shopping, so just start there and you'll help us out no matter what you buy. Today I have an item for you that makes a great gift. It's a great thing to add to your preps. And it is the best product in its category there is, and it's on sale for more than half off. Pretty cool, huh? It's the Streamlight Siege Lantern, specifically the 540 lumen model that runs on 3D cell batteries. It normally sells for $63. Bucks. It's an expense for an LED lantern. It's expensive because it's the best. Everybody that owns one loves it. They have something like 4,000 reviews on Amazon with five stars. I mean, that's that's a level of quality you're talking about here. It's on sale for $28. Bucks. Normally $63 on sale for $28. That's a deal that makes a great gift. It's a good way to spread prepping. Of course, I recommend the E-Tech City 4-Pack Lanterns because you get them for like 5 bucks a piece. 
They're pretty cool little lanterns. They're nothing compared to this, though. The other thing about the Streamlight Siege Lantern, and right in the write-up I have it for you, it uses D-cell batteries. Rechargeable D-cells suck. They just do. It, it's just it, it's cost prohibitive. It doesn't work out really well. Double A's and triple A's are the rechargeables to have in your home. They go on your remote controls. There's all kinds of things you can use them for. End loops are one of the better ways to do this. And most people in this audience that have listened for a while have made double A's and triple A's part of their preps, rechargeables. So you can get these little packs, and I have a link in the show notes today. You put two double A's in them, and they, turn, they make it two double A's into one D-cell. Of course, they don't have the longevity of a true D-cell, but it's a rechargeable double-A. See? You just put it back in. What I do is I keep two sets of Duracells with all devices like this. I put them in a bag, and I attach them somehow to the device that those batteries are for, and I store them outside the device. That way I know when I need it, it will work. It is there, and I have longevity. And these things last a long time on a set. If that runs out, and if I don't have more D-cells somewhere else or whatever, and I need to start using rechargeables, I use the double A's inside these little these little uh, little little uh, cases, and it works perfectly. It's just as bright. It just doesn't last as long. But hey, again, you just charge them back up. Last but not least, the other way you can uh, show some reciprocity: consider becoming a member of the MSP. You do that, you'll help us out. Uh, it's fifty bucks a year. But I'll tell you what: right now, I am working on a goal to acquire a certain amount of R. I have kind of a delta of how much R. If you will pay me in R, I will give you an undisclosed sale price on MSB. Email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC MSB in the subject line so I know that's what it's about. That way if it goes in a spam folder, it might. I will eventually uh, find it. And uh, if you'll pay in R, I'll give you a special deal. And we can even work out like what that means because I just sold one today. And I've sold, I think, four this year. Cryptocurrency only this year is the only way I've done it that we're lifetime memberships. So that's possible, especially if you're willing to pay in R. I might even consider doing that for other cryptos. Uh, yeah, I would, especially if it was like, I don't know, Bitcoin. Because I could just convert it to R myself without having to do two conversions. So anyway, there you go. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. This song today is a great one. When we're thinking about the value of not being in giant cities. It was originally done by Whalen in 1990, and then it was re-released as a cover in 96 by Travis Tritt. And uh, while Whalen is truly great, Travis is the one that made this song into a hit, a big-time hit. It's called Where Corn Don't Grow. And it's about a guy that grows up you know, on a family farm, And just dreams of bigger things and decides, I want to go explore and find these bigger things. And eventually realizes things are not so great out there and realizes who he really is and goes back home. It's a common theme. It's been in a lot of stories. This one was penned, though, by Mark Allen Springer, who wrote the original song. And it is very, very autobiographical. It's very much a story of his life. Um, I see a lot of wisdom in this song. And it's probably why when I got out of the Army, I tried to go home. I tried to go home to Pennsylvania. And it didn't work for me. I, I couldn't do it. I ended up coming here to Texas. But there was a piece of me that always wanted kind of that, that down-home freedom lifestyle. I didn't really want to live in cities and towns and whatever. And I did it for a time. 
because it did allow me to advance in my career. But you see the way that I live now. And so as you're listening to this song, if wherever you really are from, if there's things about it you love, but you know it just won't work for you, you may find like myself that sometimes coming home isn't going to the place you called home. It's finding the place you want to be. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As we sat on the front porch of that old gray house where I was born and raised. Staring at the dusty fields where my daddy worked hard every day. I think it kind of hurt him when I said, Daddy, there's a lot that I don't know. But don't you ever dream about a life where corn don't grow. He just sat there sighing, staring at his favorite coffee cup. I saw a storm of mixed emotion in his eyes when he looked up. He said, son, I know at your age, seems like this old world is turning slow. And you think you'll find the answer to it all, where corn don't grow. Hard times are real, there's dusty fields no matter where you go. You may change your mind, cause the weeds are high where corn don't grow. Daddy turned and walked back in the house I was only 17 back then But I thought that I knew more than I know now I can't say he didn't warn me This city life's a hard road to hold Ain't it funny how a dream can turn around where corn don't grow Hard times are real There's dusty fields No matter where you go And you may change your mind Cause the weeds are high Where corn don't grow You may change your mind Oh, the weeds are high Where corn